HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila. Handcrafted, expert approved, with over 20 international blind tasting awards. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York, 40% alcohol by volume. Drink responsibly. Okay, hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni, I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio. And today is Tuesday, May 31st, we're recording remotely. And uh, I, I came upon this guest um, in the way that many of these shows do come together, where, where someone said, hey, why don't you talk to Dave McLean at Admiral Malting? And I thought this is going to be a really great show, and we've had a lot of back and forth. So there, we actually have a lot to talk about, even though we've never met. So, Dave, why, why don't you say just a few things about yourself so that our listeners can can hear your voice and get to know you a little bit. Sure, yeah. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Dave McLean from Admiral Maltings. And uh, before that, I was the founder of Magnolia Brewing Company here in San Francisco. And uh, another little bar here in the city called Alembic Bar that was a, uh, is still a cocktail bar. Uh, but my primary focus these days is making malt, uh, making and selling malt at Admiral Maltings. Wow. And that, that's a great history right there. Let, let's just start with, you know, the early days. So Alembic Bar, Magnolia Brewing, early days in craft beer, uh, how you got into it, and, um, you know, some of your interests that, that kept you, you know, in it for so long. Yeah, well, you know, I for me, it started uh, back east. Uh, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I went to school in Boston. I went to BU. And... Uh, you know, spent all my until I moved out here later. I spent all my time in on the East Coast, and my discovery of craft beer happened in Boston. Um, there weren't that many breweries back then. I mean, this is we're talking eighty-seven to ninety-one was the time I was there, and uh, but there was uh, you know Harpoon was already there, um, Catamount up in Vermont was there. Uh, so there were some local beers. There were some breweries from Maine, I think. Ah, I can't remember if I think Gritty McDuff's was around by then. Um, so there were beers starting to show up back there that caught my attention. 
Uh, and I've, I've told this story elsewhere, but uh, really the, one of the first things that kind of clicked was discovering a lot of uh, West Coast craft beers in the parking lots of Grateful Dead shows. <laughs> uh, especially Sierra Pale. And I know for sure I had my first Sierra Pale in a parking lot somewhere. I don't know where. Um, you know, North Coast and, and uh, uh, Mendocino Brewing, Red Tail Ale, those were, those were showing up. You know, you, there was sort of a, an, an odd migration of West Coast California craft beers that would turn up in, the, in parking lots because a lot of California hippies would load up the vans and head out on tour and sell beer to make money. So that's what you'd find in picnic coolers in the lot. Uh, so it's an odd, odd way to discover it, but you know it, it made sense because there was a that was an environment and a culture where thing you know there was a, a shunning of things mass produced and, and kind of going against the grain. It was an alternative culture and. So, of course, beers like that that were unique and different, had a lot of flavor, those were the things that were embraced. And, and they were, they, maybe they were embraced there before they would pop up in other places, you know, in the community. So, um, that's, that, was the, that was the intro. Uh, there was a little pub in Boston in Kenmore Square that I would go to that had some, uh, some craft beers and some uh, English imports like Fuller's that got me kind of sent down an English brewing path. It's neat that you're talking about that because I don't, I don't think too much about early days all I know is that I think when I started out too, I wanted something different. You know, you you wanted to have wine or beer and food that 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 wasn't just commercial, and that kind of was an extension of your identity, right? It's, I mean, yeah. we say lifestyle, but then we might have said it was cool, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, if if you had any kind of of a of a bent toward you know thinking I don't know, outside of mainstream boxes and and whatever kind of path you're on had any kind of uniqueness to it it's sort of in hindsight it felt like a natural fit you know it's like yeah why would i be drinking budweiser in the lot of a dead show when everybody's making their own i don't know whatever people made their own clothing and what jewelry and selling all that stuff i mean like it, it seems like a no-brainer you know I, I certainly didn't think about it at the time i wasn't i wasn't analytical enough to think why am i liking this but uh <laughs> you know it, it makes total sense yeah well so so the the next step you went to uh UC Davis and and you learn how to brew. Exactly, I I, I caught the bug. Um, started visiting a lot of breweries on the East Coast. Still, um, you know there was a there was one brewery. It's no longer there. It was a brew pub in Boston, uh, in the North End near Boston Garden, that was called Commonwealth Brewing Company. And that particular brewery had a a strong focus on English style beer and cast condition beer. And that kind of set me down that path. Um, and there was a Commonwealth had a uh, sister brewery that you probably remember may remember in Manhattan called Manhattan Brewing Company. Oh uh, yeah, I think it was on Canal Street near the tunnel, um, up, up on a second floor, I believe, if I remember correctly. And um, they also had cast condition beer there. I remember that as an early. So yeah, I I, I kind of went down a path of of really loving English style beer and brewing and cast condition beer. Um, as I made my way out here, catching a lot of dead shows on the way. I started visiting a lot of local breweries and, um, as you know, I travel through a town and, and seek out the local brewery, which was so much harder than, right. This is pre-internet. So, you know, the, the, the move was to find a brewery and then pick up whatever that region's brews paper was, the, the, you know, whether it was ale street news or, or, or Midwest brewing news or whatever out here, we had the celebrator. And then in, in, in those papers, the formula for those newspapers was always a, a centerfold directory of the breweries in that area. So you'd, you'd find one of those and then you kind of plot out the course around, you know, around that region. So I was already doing that and 
on my way west. This would be 1991. By the time I got out here, I was so obsessed that one of the first things I did when I landed here and, and got situated was uh, find a homebrew shop, probably because it was listed in the Celebrator beer newspaper, <laughs> and, uh, and start homebrewing. And I got so hooked so fast that I quickly figured out that there was a program at Davis for me, and I went and did it. Wow. So back back then, I remember like even in New York, there were there were some early beer bars and it seemed that English style ales was was something that that was different, right, from from crap, you know, commercial beers, but also um, like things like Chimay and and some of the Belgian beers. Right. Yeah, those were kind of your two options, right, in terms of big, broad categories or families Um, for as much as they're. Have, has always been some you know amazing great German beer. There was a little bit of a, 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 a I don't know how to put it, but you know there was a little bit of a, a, a ignoring of that because people were trying to get so far away from from bland domestic American lagers, and so lagers lagers as a whole kind of as a broad category kind of sometimes got ignored or overlooked. And so you're, the two other options at the time were definitely you know Belgian stuff or english inspired beers and that's that's sort of kind of the, the birth of american craft beer seems to have kind of come more out of those two and then only i'd say only now are we kind of falling back in love with really high quality lagers oh. it took this long to become safe to drink lagers again <laughs> <laughs> yes and going back uc davis uh, what was the program like back then i mean you were there in like the the early 90s um it wasn't trendy then i'm sure and what what was the focus of the Brewers program then? Well, it was it was just kind of pivoting from, you know, uh, the Michael Lewis, Doctor Michael Lewis was the the guy that founded the brewing department at at Davis in the nineteen sixties, and he taught brewing science to undergrads there. Um, I guess grad students too, but he taught brewing science there through the seventies and eighties. Um, at that time, people that took those courses were primarily, I guess, the only thing you could do. Either you were going to stay in academia and teach, or you were going to go work in a big brewery. Um, somewhere along the line, as soon as the craft beer movement kind of got started in the 80s, um, I think Dr. Lewis started to see more people coming to him that didn't have any connection to the big beer world and, and wanting to figure out how to start their own breweries or learn how to brew commercially. So uh, somewhere in the late 80s, I guess he started a, a master brewers program that was more geared toward um, people that that were looking to get into the industry in a different way, and so yeah, it was it was I think it was a fairly new program when I was there. I guess I started in '93, and uh, and you know it was a it was a year long. It was it pretty much just took all of the courses one might have taken there over the course of a four year major and condensed them all into all the brewing courses into one year and. Uh, I think there were about 12 or 13 of us in the class. Um, people kind of career change people. I mean, I was coming at it pretty young. I had just graduated from college and was avoiding finding a job and trying to find something I really wanted to do. <laughs> so I was I was probably one of the younger people there. There were some people that were career changing from, there was a guy that was moving from law to brewing, and I think somebody else was getting out of medicine and moving into brewing. So there were just a handful of people, and everybody was just, kind of trying to figure out how to get into this burgeoning new craft beer scene. Yeah. I mean, UC Davis, you know, has a great reputation. I mean, how much of, of the study program was was books and science and, and how much was, was a hands-on 
uh, equipment. At the time I did it, it was 75 or 80% books and science. Uh, and then there was a, a very old, I mean, the, the lab, uh, there's a pilot brewery in the lab that was built back when the, the program was started in the 60s. So it was already, you know, 20 plus years old. Um, there wasn't a good system yet for doing internships or apprenticeships that were linked to the program. I mean, that came later. I mean, they, they certainly do that there now. Um, at the time, it was really focused on on the lectures and the lab work. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, since then, so fast forward, I know that maybe five years ago, the Culinary Institute of America in uh, Hudson Valley, New York, added a, 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 I don't know if it was a brewing program, but they actually added a brewing course that all the students could take. And, and they have a nice, um, decent small size system, and they make beer for the whole campus. Um, so it's definitely come a long way. I can't imagine what it was like back then. I keep thinking about... Um, there was there was one one teacher there um, who was English and his job was to study the chemicals in in dishwashing soap and how it would impact the head uh, on on your pint glass. Um, I mean, those are the kind of things that that people were studying at UC Davis back then, weren't they? Yeah, uh, that's that's a real thing for sure. Uh, in fact, the the, uh, the the person you may be more familiar with. Uh, after Michael Lewis semi-retired, he, he stuck around for a long time and, and is still around, but uh, uh, the person that took over the program at Davis uh, a few years after I finished it was uh, Charlie Bamforth. Oh, Dr. yeah, Charlie, Bamforth. yeah. And, uh, you know, his a lot of his academic background was in foam science and, foam, you know, foam stability, foam, foam positive proteins, foam negative proteins, um, things like that. So, you know, it, when, you, when you're at a research, you know, university where there's there's – you know, people writing papers and doing doing scientific inquiry into things. It's it's a lot of really granular things that you know that, that don't necessarily uh, pop up in everyday brewing, but they inform everything that we do. You know, that's part of it's the, it's the underlying science. And and so you know, I the, the, despite it being so academic at the time, I, I still reflect back on a lot of the things that I learned and the way that they were kind of drilled into me there. And it's it's useful. It's just you know, there's a throughout history. There's been you know a lot of a lot of science, a lot of a lot of human scientific discovery has happened uh, for the cause of beer. You know, Louis Pasteur and uh, you know the uh, the development of pasteurization, and understanding of single cell organisms, and uh, micro modern microbiology. I mean, that that stuff all happened to uh, while people were doing that inquiry at in breweries. So it's uh, human human science owes a lot to beer. I think. And probably refrigeration probably helps was a big part of this too, wasn't it? Yeah, that, that was a game changer. It's it's I yeah I don't know if I don't know if it's been completely encapsulated into a, a book or, or anything, but I'd love to kind of see the the pattern or the pathway of science and, and beer and how those two are so linked throughout human human history. Yeah, I mean with the refrigeration, I'm sure that you know with rail cars and you know breweries expanding, it kind of went hand in hand. I'm sure that the the potential to to ship lots on a train, you know, probably did a lot of, uh, anyways, real, real cars, man. I want to go from there. I wanted to ask you about, um, I mean, opening Magnolia in the 90s. I mean, we're, we're kind of going way deep with you, but yeah. I got the chance to. Why not, man? Um, sure. You know, the 90s, people don't quite understand what happened with craft beer. I mean, most people didn't know it was happening, but, but, 
but there was a, a lot of risk involved and um, it was probably still considered something novel. I mean, how, how were you able to open a brewery then? And, and, you know, what were you up against? Cause I mean, were, were banks lending money then, you know, did you have people that could, that could brew with you? Yeah, well, it was it certainly was a different era. Um, it's it's kind of fun to think back and talk about it. Well, I still have these memories, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, but it, I was I wasn't thinking that big because uh, it just didn't make sense to at the time. I mean, there was just so little action in the beer world at that time. But there were, you know, I think in the early '90s when I was first kind of exploring breweries, there were two or three hundred and. Fast forward in 97, when Magnolia opened, there were about 700 breweries in the country. You know, to compare that to now, which there's about close to 11,000, I think. Um, but, you know, there were there were enough around, you know, I certainly wasn't one of the early pioneers. The, the, the folks who opened breweries in the 80s have my, you know, permanent uh, adulation because I, I can't imagine trying to do it back then. Uh, it was hard enough to do it in the 90s. But uh, I wasn't thinking that big. I was thinking brew pub. You know, I really wanted, I was very enamored with the pubs of England and, and the idea of creating a place where people came to, to drink your beer. Um, as a as a brewer my, myself, I I wanted to have that ultimate control all the way to the glass. You know, I, I felt like so much of what can go wrong in, with a beer happens after it leaves the brewery. So I thought, well, well, just keep it in the brewery until it gets into the glass. So I, I was really, and that was an era where brew pubs were a little more of the dominant part of craft beer. It wasn't even called craft beer then, right? It was called the microbrews. <laughs> microbrews, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the, the the packaging and distributing microbrewery, while there were some, were still a little bit more of an anomaly compared to brew pubs, which had a bit of a, 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 a craze. There was like a brew pub craze in the mid-90s. Um, by the time I opened, a lot of those had closed. So what I was up against was people uh, – an industry that was kind of in its infancy that had already experienced or was it was experiencing its first sort of shakeout and contraction. So there were people making arguments about why would you open that? That seems like something that was, you know, a fad that's over now or ending, um, which sounds crazy to think about here in 2022. But there had, I think the year that Magnolia opened, I, either, the, either the year it opened or the year before was the first year when the Brewers Association was, you know, counts their stats for the year, that where there were more closings than openings, and so that it was, it was strange because on the one hand it, was, it felt like an up and coming industry, but on the other hand, it was an industry that was going through a bit of a shakeout or a correction or contraction, whatever you want to call it. So um, it was uncertain to say the least what what kind of success we would have, um, but it was just a very small, you know, it was a small pub. We put the brewery in the basement uh, as a seven barrel system. It was a mix of used and some new equipment. Um, you know, I, I did have some friends and family that invested. I did get a bank loan, and, and it you know it took a while, but we ultimately paid off that first bank loan. Um, you know, it it of course interest rates were sky high in the '90s. You know, I think our our interest rate on that first loan was like you know it's like prime plus three percent, and prime was like seven percent, so it was like a ten percent bank loan. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, we got the doors open. And uh, I did the brewing myself for a short period until the business started to be too distracting. And then I had to hire an assistant brewer. Um, so we didn't really need a lot of people to brew because it was a brew pub, you know. And there were certainly uh, it's possible on that system, which is still there to, you know, you can brew solo down there. And it's more help. It's, it's a lot less 
uh, backbreaking and hard if you can have a, a helper. But, um, you know, for a while there, it was, you know, these are simpler times, I guess, right? I mean, I just go down in the basement and brew a batch of beer and then come upstairs and, <laughs> and uh, chat with customers and try to convince them why they should drink it. Yeah. Um, and the thing we were up against, you know, the most was there were only a handful of breweries in the city, but there were a few. There were, you know, a larger handful of breweries scattered around the Bay Area. Uh, but there's still, it was still such a niche and so off the mainstream radar that I swear I'm not joking that people, the majority of people that came in in those first first year or two would always order a Budweiser or a Coors Light or, or whatever. And when we tell them we didn't have that, they'd, they'd say, oh, well, I'll have, a, I'll have a Bud Light then or whatever. And like, <laughs> it, just, it was so not on their radar. Um, and we had to start every conversation. It felt like every conversation was a, was went to the... Oh, we make our own beer here. We're a brewery, and had to like really start at that square one for people. Wow. What would you sell, tell someone to get when if they ordered a Bud Light? Because I remember even two thousand five when I opened my first pub, Jimmy's Number Forty Three, which I loved. You know the the beer then was Stella, which was you know the mass produced Belgian lager, and we always ended up having like a a better lager, right? Well, I, I couldn't do that because we didn't make any loggers. The brewery wasn't really set up to make loggers. And, and at that time, people, not that many people were. I mean, there were some people specializing in delicious German-style loggers, but it was it was uncommon. And so we were making English-style ales, and we were making American, you know, adaptations of English-style ales and, you know, early hoppy beers, early, you know, American IPAs. So I didn't have anything like that to, to give people, so I had to kind of – we, we had to steer them toward flavor and like get them to not drink with their eyes first, you know, because they'd see something come out of the tap that was, even if it was a copper colored beer, it was quite a bit darker than the lagers they're used to drinking. So um, it was very rudimentary just trying to like get people to understand that, you know, you know, the darker the beer doesn't necessarily mean more flavor or, um, you know, just there's so many little little things that we all we take for granted now but um at that time it was just it was really more just like a pleading begging like just try it you'll like it i swear you know <laughs> and it's alcohol so right there's that but did, 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 did you sell more high high abv beers than low uh yeah well we didn't make a lot of high abv beers uh every you know in the winter fall and winter we did and we later just started doing some uh, a fun thing with uh, another local brewery 21st amendment where we did the strong beer month every february but we kept most of our high abv beers for special occasions like that and i was trying to push people on it was an even harder sell in some ways because i was trying to push people on english miles and ordinary bitters best bitters you know stuff that was three and a half to four and a half percent abv um and there were people that did come in and and just look at the board and order by alcohol. They just go for the strongest beer. Uh, but yeah, you know, these are beers that were more expensive and had lower alcohol uh, and maybe had more flavor. So it was very confusing to a lot of people. Yeah. And yet it worked. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> it, it worked. People kept coming. You know, but about English style and the, and the cast beers, and I, I know that they're coming back again, um, but it seemed like through the, into the late 2000s that, that having a, a cask engine at the bar represented – especially with beer bars, it represented a certain type of, of beer bar. Um, what was that like in, in the late 90s? I mean, did you have to sell people on Cascale or did you actually have devotees? Uh, both. We absolutely had to sell more people than we had devotees. But, um, we, you know, I started out with a, 
Yeah, because I was so obsessed with English style beers, we built a separate second cast cooler in the basement that had stillage for ticket hold twenty two Firkins. And we put in five beer engines on the bar. They were they were countermount, you know, they were built right into the bar, not the clamp on kind. Like we were we really kind of went for it. And uh it it did somewhat follow the if you build it, they will come uh, you know, saying because a few people would come out of the woodwork that that heard about our cast beer and they would come for that. And then other people we were able to kind of turn on to cast beer and make make new fans out of them. Um it you know, I think uh it's just like one thing we would do over and over and over, and I always told our our staff that was like they were welcome to do this and please do it was to always if there was a beer that was being served both ways and somebody ordered it on regular draft to, to pour them a little taste of the cask version of the same beer just to educate them. Um, so those early days, it was just a lot of that over and over. Yeah, so I think it really comes down to having having your systems and 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 really doing a good job of it, right? Because even now it's like there there's a some places on the East Coast I'm seeing are adding like the Czech style, style side pour. And when it's done well, it, it's not just a novelty, but it, it's it's a really good good drink. Um, yeah. I think that the same for cask. If, if, if someone's really doing a good job and they have a cask conditioned ale, um, then it, it, it can make a comeback too. Just because I, like, I feel like by the early 2000, 2010s, it, it was out of control where everyone was putting every damn thing in a cask. <laughs> And sending it to a yeah. festival, like like ten percent imperial IPAs with, with weird you know herbs in it. Yeah, um, that that makes me sad. It always made me sad to see because I I love the I love the the sort of finesse and subtlety and nuance of cask beer more than anything. It's like you know the the thing that that had that got me hooked that still has me hooked is when you back off on the CO two a little bit, but not all the way, and you back you know, back off on the cold a little bit and bring up the temp slightly. Uh, that's when really subtle beers really open up. And so it was kind of such a catch 22 or, you know, to, to have people, you know, putting in cask programs, but then turning around and filling those casks with a bunch of unusual ingredients and making really strong beers. And, you know, to me, it missed the, it missed the whole point of what can be so special about cask. Um, so I, I, and I hope that people, it does feel like it's kind of coming back, but it's, it's always felt like it's been kind of coming back and it never really does. Um, you know, I, I, it, it requires, like you said, systems, you know, I see sometimes yeah. a cask gets thrown up on a bar right before service and it shakes up the sediment and then the beer is cloudy and then it gets rationalized as, Oh, well, it's kind of the rustic style cause it's cask. And it's like, no, you know, if you went to a pub in England, uh, there would be an expectation that that beer would be brilliantly clear. And there would also be an expectation that it'll probably be under 5%. And and an expectation that it would not have anything in it but uh, you know barley, hops, yeast, and water. Yeah, well, I think that that's probably why cask is is so hard to do right because it's the ultimate craft beer. The same way that you know certain kind of cheeses d demand to be like you know finished in a cave and handle it, serve at the proper temperature. You know, it's not the kind of thing that you can just mass produce. You know, and I've said this before, and we can say it, but, you know, Guinness, the nit the nitrogen is, you know, whenever it was the 50s, the, the nitrogen poor is the is the industrialization of the cast style, you know? And right. we all know that. Not everyone knows it, but um, I, I think that the brew pub is probably the best place for a, a, a cast conditioned beer. Don't you think so? 
Yeah, either either a very enlightened beer bar that is super serious about it and wants to get it right and has somebody on the staff that can be a fanatic for it and, a, and an advocate for it, um, or a brewery where the same thing, you know, as long as the, the brewer or somebody there is really focused on it. Um, it, it just doesn't, I think what we've established is it doesn't really work as an afterthought or an add-on. It has to be something that um, somebody, uh, at least one person somewhere in that chain is really obsessed with it and wants to kind of see it through in a, in a super high quality way. Yeah. You know, I, I never thought we were going to talk about that, but I'm glad we did because it, it inspires me. Like w- one reason we're also going to talk about craft malt is that I'm always thinking about, you know, that special experience that I have that I want to go, you know, go to a place for, and why would I go back? You know, there's so many places I'm not going to talk about macro breweries buying, you know, buying up craft beer and everything. I really want to go to somewhere special. Um, sorry, one second. I've got, <laughs> I'm in a house and there's people. And you may have heard before the ice cream truck went by. So I did hear that. <laughs> we got a lot of local character, but um, yeah, I mean, so cask, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is cask beer done right is something, is ways for a tap room or a beer bar to stand out. And um, that's, yeah, and that's absolutely. exciting. It's exciting for me because I do love beer. And, and I want to say, I know that you. We're going to talk more about the San Francisco Brewers Guild and the Bay Area and everything. But from doing this, how did you become a maltster? I mean, that's really where this is leading. Is that you? You cut your teeth. You know a lot about beer. You you went to UC Davis, which I didn't know. You know you had a brewery. How how did you become a maltster? And just full full disclosure. For me, I find that craft malt is is like one of the most exciting things in craft beer right now. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you say that because I, I feel the same way. Uh, I think craft malt and and uh, local regional ingredients, so including hops in there too, um, is really the next frontier and next chapter in craft beer. Or I would certainly like it to be if I could have any say in it. And it's a thing that I've wished uh, wished for pretty much since I got into it. And one of my two partners, Ron Silverstein, um, he started Thirsty Bear Brewing here in San Francisco one year before Magnolia opened. And so I know, you know, we, we both feel that way or felt that way for years. Um, I made by, by virtue of making a lot of English style beers, virtually, virtually all, well, almost all of the malt that we used at Magnolia was English, Maris Otter. And it's an amazing malt. It's got this great story to it. It's an heirloom variety that that keeps getting grown and keeps getting malted, even though um, a lot of barley varieties uh, tend to kind of have a, a moment and then get surpassed by the next barley that comes out of a breeding program. But Maris Otter is this legendary malt. Brewers around the world love it. Brewers in England still love it. Um, I used a ton of it. I used many, many tons of it um, over the years. And yet, you know, the bummer was it was from five or 6,000 miles away. And, you know, using it for 20 years straight, you start to start to think about some of the numbers behind that, just how much, you know, what's the, what's the carbon footprint and the, the, the miles traveled of all that malt to get to a little tiny brewery in the Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. And it's like, you know, I, I wouldn't do it over differently with what was available then, but if I could have made all that beer, all that English style beer with super freshly kilned, California grown malt, uh, like what we're making in Admiral, uh, I would totally replace the, most of the malt that we used uh, for something like that. And that's kind of where it started for me. Um, Ron, my, my one partner, uh, was was the 
the driver of this. He was the one really trying to start a local malt house for these for similar reasons. And um, and Curtis Davenport, our, our our third partner, comes at it more from uh, sustainable farming um, and looking for ways to make. Uh, crops that are better suited for California's growing conditions into something of value that farmers might like to grow. Um, and so, you know, but I, I just wish that the whole time, uh, I, I wish there was, I wish I could have made all that Magnolia beer with local grain because when you start to, you know, the, the craft beer industry wraps itself up so much in the, the sort of flag of, of local, you know, support your local brewery and, and, you know, we have all kinds of stats about why that's good, and it is good. It's amazing, you know, to have uh, local jobs and keep money in the community and not send money out of the country to large multinational corporations. You know, when, when someone comes in and drinks a beer at a local brewery, like it's it's really, you know, supporting the community uh, and jobs. And it's all true, um, but when you start to put it under the big spotlight and stare at it really closely, you know, why does that, how can that stop at the brewery itself? You know, what about all the rest of the story upstream from there? You know, the, you know, where did that grain get grown? Um, since grain isn't really used raw, like where did it get malted? Who malted it? Who grew it? Who malted it? Um, how did it get to, how did it get into the brewery? It's not like the brewer snapped his fingers or her fingers and just made it appear. Uh, and so I feel like the story of craft beer is as powerful as it has been can only become more powerful if you actually connect all the dots and link it all together and make it so, you know, now we're not talking about local beer that's just, that's made from ingredients uh, shipped and trucked in from all over the world. Uh, but now we're talking about local beer made from, you know, malt from uh, across the bay, uh, which is made from grain that was grown just outside of the Bay Area in the Sacramento Valley. In our case, you know, there, there's craft there's a craft malt industry, as you know, that's sprung up all over the country and um, and world. And so, you know, there, a lot of people around the country can tell similar stories about their beer if they if they work with craft malt and support their local maltster. Um, and so, um, it was kind of a no brainer for me to to partner up with Ron and Curtis. Uh, you know, I. I'm a little uncomfortable when you call me a maltster because I don't drag the, the turner and shovel the malt as much or at all, really. You know, we have maltsters who are the, the hardest working people in the beer industry, I think, other than farmers, maybe, um, just because it's such physical backbreaking labor, especially to do it our way, which is floor malting. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be a, a founder of a, of a malting company and, and operating a, a malting company with my partners, um, it's it feels like, I mean, I kind of miss brewing, uh, but... And I hope to start another brewery and use craft malt in that. But um, but for now, uh, it feels like the next logical step. And it feels like a way that we and our, our fellow craft maltsters are able to kind of strengthen the larger story of, of craft beer. Wow. Hey, man, we're off to a great start. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the planet. 
through which they support HRN as well as Sacred. My organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Join us and become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. There's over 30 shows talking about food, farms, chefs, and drinks like beer, cider, and cocktails. Some really good ones on heritageradionetwork.org. So this is a special show. We're talking with Dave McLean of Admiral Maltings in Alameda, California. Kind of a one-on-one interview, which we don't do too often. But we went back to the 90s. He studied at UC, UC Davis and had a brewery, and um, he's at the forefront of craft malt in, in the West Coast. So, um, Dave, you know, when we talk about craft malt, how do you convince a customer that, that, that is craft malt better? How does craft malt matter to, to the drinker? And on that note, I, th- I think about, like, you mentioned Maris Otter before. When you think about the, the styles that we think of as classic malts, like if it was something from the you know, Czech area in 200 years ago or Maris Otter, those are also were like regional and, and kind of craft malts then, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, we're, you know, we're the country with this sort of new beer uh, culture and community, right? I mean, because we, we had the, you know, the unfortunate break from it all with prohibition and then an equally unfortunate consolidation that that sort of jettisoned so much of our beer culture out the window and um so this is you know these last 30 40 years of craft beer we've had to kind of reinvent everything but you go over to some of those other places that you're talking about and they have an unbroken tradition and you know you travel around bavaria you know southern germany uh franconia region especially there are so many little breweries there that that make beer that we'll never taste unless we go there and, they, and there are different, there are malt houses there that, that make malt that only maybe a few breweries in a certain region make beer with. And you go to Czech Republic and, you know, they have a, they have a very powerful connection to, to their malting industry. You know, the, the breweries and the malt, malt houses are very closely connected. Um, and you go to England and, and there's still a lot of breweries over there. There's a, there's a new craft scene over there that's trying to make many different kinds of beer, including a lot of American-influenced beers. But there's still a lot of folks over there brewing beer with Maris Otter and Golden Promise uh, that, that might be malted locally, grown locally, you know, near, that, near a brewery there and, and used. So um, those cultures, uh, I think they do it right. They have it right. And, and I think it's us that are just kind of relearning uh, how to connect this piece to the puzzle. You know, we figured out the brewery part, um, and I think it's I think it's pretty cool to to have it all interconnected. And I think here in the Bay Area, um, you know, it's it's one of the birthplaces of the, the modern farm to table food movement. Um, it's it's a place where for thirty or forty or even call it fifty years maybe since you know Chez Panisse, Alice Waters started in the early seventies. You know, like and people around here and people all over the world now, I mean, it's not like we're that special anymore at this, but, you know, certainly New York, too, with the Hudson Valley. Um, you know, people are well conditioned to 
to think about what they eat and drink, think about where where it came from, think about how it was produced, how it was grown, uh, you know, ask questions uh, and just pay attention. And and so, if anything, I think it's strange that it's taken so long for beer, which has been sort of an early pioneer in some ways of, of sort of the independent local movement. And yet, um, the ingredient part of beer hasn't necessarily come along with that, you know. And so, I think it's to me, it's like a, a missing link. It's like an oversight. It's like why why haven't we been talking about the malt that goes into the beer? Why, you know, you look at those other cultures, like we said, and you look at at the rest of the food culture. Uh, where we're at now, like how how could we be overlooking this? You know, I mean, yeah. this is the foundation of beer. Malt is the soul of beer, as maltsters like to say. And uh, you know, how can you how can you overlook that foundational part of it? Um, and I know, you know, one one could answer it's partly because we put because the hops are so prevalent or or yeast derived flavors, and, and malt is just kind of the the uh, reliable backbone in some cases, unless you're making a really malt malt centric beer. But you know, just even a very delicate Czech Pilsner is often all about that malt as the starting point. And that's why the Czech breweries still have such a connection to their malt houses. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the foundation and uh, that's the kind of conversation we like to have with our our, our pub customers. So we kind of play both sides, right? I mean, we have a pub uh, next to the malt house with windows that overlook the germination floors and as far as we know, we're we're one of, if not the only place that where you, a customer could sit and drink a beer at a table and look out over malted grain. I'm coming. So, that that's where yeah. I want to go, man. It's some of the best the best seats in the house look through the windows right onto the germination floor, and it, it gets people asking questions. It gets us puts us in a position of being able to educate and, and answer those questions and to share the the malting part of the beer story with people. Um, so we do that. And then we, you know, our, but our customers of our malt house are brewers and distillers. And so we have to, you know, do our job to convince the brewers and distillers that they could make super high quality uh, beers and spirits uh, with, with enough character that, that comes from our malt that makes it worth paying extra for our malt because it costs more than larger, you know, mass produced malt. And then we turn around and we try to do that. We try to kind of juice that a little bit by talking to their, their customers too, who happen to be our pub customers you know, the, the larger beer drinking public and, and get them thinking about, you know, so they're asking the right questions. You know, we'd love for more beer drinkers to walk into more tasting rooms and beer bars and ask, you know, do you have anything made with local malt wherever they happen to be? Because okay. that so should be the question. Let, let's talk about beers then. So f- for me right now, there's a, a site this week in rock beer, which is kind of a fun site and, and writer, Writer editor John Hall cooked that up a couple years ago, and what I love about this week in rock beer and and people that are becoming fans of rock beer is that they're talking about a process to the malt. So they're actually right; they're talking about malt, even though they don't really know which malt it is. Right? Do you that that makes sense? Right? So if people are talking about rock rock beer. That means that they are thinking about malt. I'm trying to go. I'm, I'm going to a whole new territory. I never right. talked about this before. So now you're going to take over, Dave. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I hear you. I think that's true because uh, hopefully in that educational process about rock beer, uh, people understand that it's the malt that gets smoked. Um, but you know, I, I, what I'd like to, I'd like for us at Admiral and our peers at other craft malt houses and all of our uh, our malt customers and the breweries and the distilleries to 
to be having a an even bigger conversation, which is just like every beer, every beer is made with malt. You know, I mean, I, I, I love that there can be a deep dive into rock beer today. Like that's amazing. And cause I like that style and that's very cool that he did that. And I'm going to check it out. Um, but the, but the, the salient point, like the takeaway is that you can't have malt. I mean, you can't have beer without malt. Uh, beer is by definition a fermented barley product or a fermented malt beverage. And you can't, really easily ferment barley unless it's been malted um, without the use of exogenous enzymes and, and a lot of headaches. Uh, so, you know, malt, malt, malted barley uh, comes from a field and it's the foundation of beer. It's an agricultural product, no, no different really than grapes and wine. And so, you know, the, the conversation is to, is, is to, you know, our responsibility or you know, what we got to have to have to do is just get people thinking about every single beer that they drink uh, just knowing that malt is where it starts. Um, so it could be the latest, you know, Pilsner um, without a lot of really robust, you know, uh, stereotypical malt sweetness, uh, but it should have some grassy notes and a little bit of like hay and, and um, you know, some, some kiln-derived flavors from the malting process itself, which, you know, could be a little bit of like bread, bread crust, you know, the, the lightest bit of toast. I mean, as you get into darker malts and, and, more full flavor beers, those things get amped up and ramped up. But, uh, you know, I think that the thing that is so critical is for people to understand that even the, even the lightest beer is still a malt beverage and should have some malt flavor to it, even if you shove a bunch of hops on top of it. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about a few, few of the beers that are made with your malt. The only reason I went to, to talking about rock beer was that it's, it's an example. I think that you can say there's, there's flavor from related to the malt. So now we're going to go to, to regionally grown, you know, grain and craft malt. Tell me about, let's talk the rest of the show about maybe three different drinks that are, are made with your malts and what's different about them in terms of the malts and what flavors you can taste. Well, that's, so yeah, that's the thing. Um, you know, I, I, I've got a couple beers here that, as I try to always have in my fridge, that are made with our malt. Um, <laughs> And, you know, one of them I've got here is, uh, is from Harmonic Brewery here in San Francisco. And uh, it's called Prague Rock Pilsner. And it is a Czech Pilsner or Czech style Pilsner, I guess. And, um, you know, one of the things that I love about it is it's 100% Admiral Pilsner. That's our, our flagship style, our Pilsner malt. You know, we make a few different base malts or foundation malts, we call them, you know, like a, a pale ale type malt, like more like a Maris Otter that's a little more robust and a couple different styles of Pilsner malt. Um, so this is, I, I think what's really cool about uh, freshly kilned malt, and that's and that's one of, that's a big part when I say freshly kilned, uh, the, the kiln derived flavors and aromas that, that, that come uh, during the kilning process, the third and final step of malting uh, are, some of them are volatile. And so just like with other heat derived compounds and, and flavors, um, just like in coffee roasting and bread baking, um, some of those flavors dissipate in, into the air because they're volatile. And so, and you have malt that's been sitting around for six months or traveling across an ocean, um, you know, some of that's lost. And so what's, what's particularly cool about a beer like this is it's, the grain bill is as simple as it gets. It's not, uh, doesn't have, you know, three or four different kinds of malt in there, each performing a specific role or, or trying to check a box to get to that brewer's, uh, you know, vision of their recipe and flavor profile. It's just one malt. Uh, it's hundred percent Admiral Pills. 
and uh, and yet it's you know it was probably made with Admiral Pills that was less than two weeks out of the kiln when they brewed with it, and so a lot of those volatile flavors and aromas are captured in there. And you know now that we've tasted so many beers, hundreds of beers have come through our taps at our pub, the Rake. Uh, we start to pick up on a house character that comes from what you know the part of the malt that's freshly killed, and so this has that. So this is a you know, on paper a pretty light beer, delicate beer. It's you know five point one percent. It's a very pale golden beer, um, and if you look into it a little further, like you know, for, or if you know, like I know, it's one hundred percent just one malt, Admiral Pills. Um, some some nice hop character. I always forget which hops are in this. They've told me a number of times, but you know, it's it's not aggressively hopped, but it's a nice it's a nice balanced beer, just like English ales are balanced. Um, and you taste that malt, you taste a little bit of that breadiness, uh, a little bit of that hay and grass, uh, and it's 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 awesome. You know, it's I I could sit here and drink a bunch of these and be pretty happy. You know, like I I don't need the the shiny new object every time I take a sip of beer where it's like a new <laughs> flavor. You know, I. I this is this to me. This is you know. It's become a, a saying now, but beer flavored beer. But it's a really great expression of it. You know, it's it's fresh because it's made with freshly killed malt, and it's got a lot of restraint in how the malt was deployed and how the hops are used. Um, it's delicate and yet it's interesting. It's super refreshing. You know, it's the first. I, we, I mean, we've like dabbled with malt shows for like ten years now. And you're the first person we've all we were mostly focused, especially in New York, on finding what varieties could grow, and you know getting people to actually you know do the malting process. So it's kind of neat to hear you say freshly killed malt. I've never heard that described as as one of the attributes of this, and I get it right away. You said bread, bread, breadiness, and hay and grass. Yeah, I mean. I didn't know it was a thing, and I, I'm not sure. I can't put words in my partner's mouth, but I think that for all of us, um, it came as a bit of a surprise, or certainly the extent of it. Um, you know, because I probably did myself a disservice by brewing with malt from six thousand miles away for so long, because that means I never ever got freshly killed Maris Otter, and yet I would travel to England many times and go visit breweries and pubs and seek out, you know, like my Desert Island beers, beers I really want to try, and I, I'd always. Then I come back you know, charged up and energized and wanting to make beers like that and more make more bitters like that. And I can never get them to be quite the same, even though I was using a lot of the same ingredients. And I think what I realized, I only realized this after having started Admiral, is I, you know, the freshly kiln part was what was always missing for me. And you know, those that's that's that turned out to be a thing. And we had no idea it was a thing. And now that we know it's a thing, and we're talking to, you know, the folks at UC Davis and they're doing some research into it and you know, it's just it was never really brought up before because most of most of us in the brewing world don't really have access to freshly killed malt. So why would it come up? But now that it's now that it can come up, and now that we know that we can have this, uh, like the brewer part of me is like, wow, I would only want to brew with freshly killed malt going forward. Uh, and I, I can't wait to learn more about which are the you know which compounds are the ones that are the most volatile, and you know. And what are the rates at which they dissipate? Because that's that's the kind of thing we're going to learn soon in the next few years, I think. And I think that's going to blow some people's minds. I mean, my mind is already blown that this that this can have the kind of effect it can have on the flavor of beer. Um, and so, yeah, like that's something that I think I, I just think we're going to. I I hope that this is something that we see more and more of and taste more and more of over the next five or ten years. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of people get it from you know the, how important the freshness of, of of real hoppy you know IPAs are you know in your local market, yeah. and um, it's kind of neat. To, it's really cool you said that because the only reason I led with talking about rug beer is that I meant to say that yeah, you can have smoked malt from Germany and make it anywhere else, but it, at least it's it's leading you that way. But this is it, man. Freshly killed malt. I don't even know what else to say anymore. Well, keep going. Let's tell, it's two more beers or, or drinks that 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 are using. So well, sure. harmonic is on my list. Yeah, uh, I don't. You probably have to come out here to check it out, but you should because uh, it's they're making some really great beers, uh, and not and not just the ones they use our malt for. Uh, they're they're good brewers there. But um, another good local brewer that. I guess I'm in a Pilsner mood today, or I guess I was when I filled my fridge. But uh, <laughs> there's a brewery in Richmond, California, in the East in the East Bay called uh, East Brother, um, which is named for an island near Richmond in the Bay called East Brother Island. And uh, they are uh, also loyal customers of ours and use our malt in some of their beers. And uh, this is a uh, this is their pre-pro lager. And it, what's kind of fun about this one? So this is a you know, the, the Prague Rock that I just had was uh, 100% malt and just all Admiral Pills malt and tastes a lot like a, a modern Pilsner. Um, the Prague Rock, uh, or the Pre-Pro from East Brother, is kind of a throwback. Uh, it's an adjunct lager, so it's got corn in there too. Uh, but the malt that it uses, so the corn's not from us, but, but the malt that it uses is uh, is from us, and it's called Atlas. And this is a um, this is an heirloom barley uh, from, from here, from, well, not originally, but so the Spanish brought Atlas over, uh, when California was being settled by the Spanish. It's named for the Atlas Mountains in Morocco. And, uh, it's a early coast six row. So it's a little bit different from the six row malt, uh, six row barley that is more commonly known from the Midwest. Um, it behaves a little bit more like a two row malt and we, you know, not to get too down a rabbit hole there, but it's a, it's a throwback barley. Um, at one time, there was a malting industry here in the Bay Area because there were big industrial breweries in San Francisco up through the 1950s, and they needed they needed access to malt, and you know it was cheaper it's cheaper to grow it and ship it locally than to ship it far. So um, there was a malting industry here. There were malt houses in San Francisco. I think there were some in the East Bay. Um, they a lot of the grain that was grown, the barley was grown by sometimes some of by some of the same farming families that are growing for us now up in the Sacramento Valley. And, uh, but the most common variety that was grown and malted back then was called Atlas, was this Atlas that we have now. So nobody's really growing it uh, around here uh, currently. Uh, we found a farmer in Paso Robles, a little south of here, who's growing some. And uh, we get a little bit each year and do a couple batches of it. And a good chunk of that goes to East Brother for this pre-pro lager. Uh, and it's just, it's kind of, it's a, it's a, we like them all, of course, um, but we love the story too because here's a here's another way to differentiate yourself and differentiate your beer. I mean, to use something that was once part of this this region's brewing heritage in the past and then sort of disappeared and now it's coming back. Um, that's that's a great way to tell that story to uh, to a beer drinker, a customer. You know, it just it ties it all together. Oh, that's great. Do you want to take a stab at one at one more beer? Well, I don't have another beer here. Um, but I, I could, well, you know, we could talk about whiskey too. You know, there's, I don't know if that's relevant. You want to talk about, I can yeah. mention a whiskey. Yeah, because I know you're, you're, you're a, so how do craft malt 
you know, you what's the difference between making craft malt for beer versus spirits? Then also, if you're talking about the fresh kiln malt flavor in beer, does that come through in spirits and is it as important? I think it is. I think it does, and I, I think it is as important. I, I think it might be a little harder to to discern because um, there's a lot more going on in a, a distillate, uh, especially when it's been aged. But uh, I've had I've had some distillers tell me that you know that, that that have studied the industry more over the years. Like where the modern the modern thinking about. Sp- especially aged spirits like whiskey and grain, especially grain-based spirits that typically are aged. Um, the modern thinking has been that the, you know, the vast majority of the flavor comes from the barrel comes, you know, after the, after you brew and ferment and, and distill it, uh, and sit it in the barrel. And, and, you know, like people throw around numbers like, well, 60% of the flavor comes, 70% of the flavor comes from the barrel. And, and, but people that, that, you know, have been paying attention longer or look back a little bit, say that's a, that's, that pendulum has swung in that direction relatively recently. And that, you know, while the barrel aging has always been important because of the significant flavors it contributes, um, there, there was a time where people did pay a little more attention to the malt uh, and the grain contributions as well. I think a lot of, a lot of brewer, a lot of distillers kind of treat uh, malt the way and grain, the way, the way brewers have um, in the sort of, late 20th century, early 2000s kind of commodity way where it's just, you know, your grain bill is important, but, you know, you do other things in your process that maybe are more important. And I, yeah, I you think can th- throw it in the wood or you can l- leave it in a, a building that heats and cools and all to draw out the wood flavor, right? So I think that should get walked back a little bit. I mean, that's super important <laughs> and it's not going to go away. But I mean, I think that, you know, the, these underlying, a lot of distillers are playing around with our malt and finding some underlying flavors that do make it through the distillation process that do make it through the aging process and, and become part of the final flavor profile of that spirit. You know, we've had, we've had some distillers do some fun experiments uh, where they've taken different, different foundation malts of ours and, and, and done different runs. And then we've done some side by sides and little subtle changes in the malt from, from malt style to malt style do show up in the finished spirit. And, and everybody that tastes those examples notices that. So um, you know, there, I think what's happening on the craft spirit world, while I'm less connected to that, you know, historically from my own path in life, um, I'm still a big fan of it and, you know, have certainly interacted with it through my bars that I've, where I've poured those spirits at. I just don't have a history of making it, but I think it's just as exciting. Um, I think there's some super cool things happening where people are, are thinking outside the box and, and, and making some different kinds of spirits, uh, and, malt seems to be playing a role in a lot of those people's products. Um, we have one, just one of our most kind of rabid distilling customers, uh, workhorse rye. Um, they make some really interesting and fantastic products and, and play around with, they get other grains that aren't from us too, like heirloom corn and, and, um, and then they'll work in some of our malt and, um, they make some great things. And then there's a, um, another local distillery called home base and they I've just recently had a bourbon of theirs that's made with our malt um, and then corn as well. But uh, it's just fantastic. Um, and it's just, you know, they, they will, um, they're, they'll, they'll bottle up a single barrel at a time. And then like the, you know, release 20, you know, we, we just had released 22 and then we got released 23, which came from a different barrel or maybe a couple of a blend of a couple different barrels. I can't recall, but you know, each bat, each release tastes a little bit different. 
uh, and yet it has a common thread, and you can kind of pick up the Admiral Malt notes in it. So um, I think I think what's happening on the spirit side is just as exciting as what's happening on the beer side. And we're stoked that so many customers on the distilling side are starting to, to use our malt. We just have to be a lot more patient because they do park those spirits in barrels for years. And, you know, we've only been around for five years, so there's not there aren't that many spirits that have been able to be released yet during our lifetime as a, as a company, as a malt house. Yeah. But we're... And then this is, we're going to do one more, one more thing. I'm going to ask you about, you know, almost 20 years ago, you, you co-founded the San Francisco Brewers Guild and, you know, the whole Bay Area scene. Um, is Admiral Malting, you, you're pretty much like you in the Bay Area. Just say something about, about the relationship you have between farms, you know, the, the malt and the, the, the producers using your product. Um, yeah, I mean... The it's brewing is as I think we all kind of know it's it's been such a community centric industry for so long and, and you know, every every region probably has its own origin stories around here you know Sierra Nevada and Anchor are some of the the most noteworthy parts of the origin story um, you know the, there's a history of collaboration that goes back to the the first people that got into this this you know this craft scene that we're part of um, you know Fritz and Ken from from Anchor and Sierra tell stories about working together, you know, Ken coming to Fritz and getting advice or used equipment or, or um, getting just getting the okay to go buy grain from his grain supplier, which was a <laughs> now defunct malt house over in North Beach in San Francisco. So, uh, you know, that, that those roots of collaboration run strong and deep. And, um, and so, you know, working together in things like a Brewers Guild also are, are really like part of the DNA of craft beer, I think. Um, state guilds around the country are a national trade group. And, and then in a lot of cases now, the local regional guilds, like, like uh, you know, when we started the SF Brewers Guild, and Ron, my, my you know, partner at Admiral, was also a co-founder of that. So we've kind of worked together for our whole time we've been in, in beer. Um, it's just, it, it's... It keeps coming back to community. It keeps coming back to relationships and people and connections and connecting the dots. And so, you know, the the things that informed most of my time in the brewing side on the brewing side of things um, feel just as relevant in malting. And uh, the connecting of the dots. There's just more dots to connect now. Instead of just connecting all of us as part of uh, brewers as part of a brewing community, now there are you know in a lot of regions there are malsters that are part of that community. Uh, and then there, as there should be, there are farmers that are part of that community. I mean, like just having farmers show up and pouring them that grew this grain for us to the mall house uh, and pouring them beer that's made with their grain, seeing their eyes light up. I mean, it's just you know, it's 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 the ultimate. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that answers what you're saying or you're asking, but it's to me, it's really like just adding layers to something that already had such a good foundation. This idea that we're all kind of in this together. Uh, Sure, it's gotten a little more competitive. Sure, it's it's a little you know a little harder now on the beer side for a lot of people than it probably used to be in some ways. But um, you know, hopefully none of us. Hopefully we don't uh, overlook those kind of formative uh, parts of our DNA, which really are about uh, connecting people with each other, connecting all the different parts of the process. Um, you know, just just having having the beer community be pretty be as broad as it can be as as as, as welcoming as it can be and, and like really showcasing all the parts of it, all the people involved. Wow. Well, now, Dave, you open the door. There's going to be a room for someone with a guidebook 
uh, of all the places serving freshly killed malt beer. <laughs> that's yeah. what I'm, hey, that's what I'm on to next, man. We're going to have some fun with this. So I think back to, that, I mean, I, I would, I'll buy one of those books. And you know, there's a lot, a lot of writers out there. So yeah. <laughs> it's a good one. Well, Dave, this was great meeting you. Uh, big shout out to my friend, uh, our friend, Travis Melvin, who connected us. And uh, yeah. there were a lot of other shout outs to give. You got Ed Gobo from Harmonic. And um, we both know Roger up at Faction, not too far from you. So um, yeah. I, I have a feeling one day I'll end up in Alameda, California. So I hope so. Oh, yeah. And uh, But thanks again. I'm going to say it one more time, kids. Fresh kilned malt beers. Wow, we, we're on to something new. This is exciting. So I feel like for the last year, we've done a lot of craft malt shows. Now, now we're finally getting it. So Nice. Thanks so much, Dave. Dave McLean, Admiral Maltings, thanks for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. Big shout out to Armin Spengen, our engineer, and Alex Tran, our producing intern. I'm Jimmy Carboni. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you. Thanks so much. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.